Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Gourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 7, Episode 16, Out With The Old. Let's get this show on the road. I liked this episode. I think it was the switcheroo they pulled on us. That was really interesting. I also really liked that. It was very much like, oh, a cursed object episode. I'm thinking maybe we're going to explore some of the ones that Bobby left in his, uh, or it was John's storage locker that had a bunch. And I'm sure Bobby probably had some. And like, I could see this being an interesting thing to get into where are these coming from or how did this person collect them? And then just like, nope, surprise, it's Leviathan's. Would you call this a bottle episode? Am I like out of line with that? You've been calling every episode a bottle episode lately. So I'm going to stop you right there. These are not bottle episodes. They're integral to the plot. (laughs) This one really does open up a surprising bit of story that I did not see coming. Listen, this episode is like the epitome of camp. Like the cold open alone, like with the ballet slippers, like neatly stacked and not stained with blood, even though her feet like exploded. Just amazing. But before it occurred to me that this was a campy episode, I was like, that seems really like poor. Oh, no. In retrospect, that's exactly what it should have been. Got it. And I think that this episode does a lot of subverting expectations. So I think you're absolutely right when you talk about the switcheroo that happens. (laughs) Are we ready for the recap? Count me down. Three, two, one, go. We have the brothers dealing with cursed objects that are each a little silly their own way. Some we learn about, some we don't. I still want to know about the porno mags, or do I? I don't know. Anyways, we have cursed objects, and then somehow this leads Dean and down a rabbit hole of like, huh, this town is selling all of their places to like the same person, and it's a weird real estate thing. And then he does the backtracking and gets Frank involved and figures out, oh no, This looks like it might be Leviathans. So they go Leviathan hunting and they get pulled to a Leviathan trap with the kid from the cursed object shop. And then they face off against two Leviathans, one of whom's like, hey, dunk my head in the toxic shit you love to pour on us because I want to eat my boss because that's a thing that happens apparently. And then we find that Leviathan's secret evil nefarious plan to rule the world is cure cancer. And then Frank is mysteriously gone, presumed dead. We have no evidence though, but I will have to see a body before I assume anyone's dead. Time. This episode was written by Robert Singer and Jenny Klein, directed by John F. Showalter, and it originally aired on February 16th, 2012, and that was almost a month after the last episode. Ooh, what a long gap. Weird. Yeah, and that was like after there were a couple of episodes after the the, the mid-season break. Audiences at the time were being spoon-fed these episodes. Like, it was like a drip. Little drip. Little, little by little. And, like, I can imagine, like, this, like, chunk of time has really been a lot of good episodes. Like, I feel like we've had a really good post-mid-season. So, like, the fact that it's been constant bangers is kind of like, ooh, the itch of, like, I want more. This is when the season is, like, more on a... 
upswing 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 thank you so much <laughs> you were doing, i was like i was doing the movement doing the, i was like swinging uh, side to that, side that swinging the motion when it goes upward there's a word <laughs> exactly. for that the upswing thank you Drew. i was like <laughs> uphill no uphill that's different that's a that's a kate bush song <laughs> so we find out that dick roman is funding an archaeological dig honestly like i forgot about that too i was so wrapped up in the other dick roman things we discover like an archaeological dig makes sense if we're thinking about he wants to find something likely ancient and supernatural and occult. Dig makes sense. So this is like, okay, cool. I get why you're doing this. Throughout this episode, Sam is fighting to stay awake because in his words, every time he closes his eyes, Lucifer is yelling inside his head. Every time I close my eyes. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> But yeah, there you go. That kind of gives us an idea of like where Sam is in his head. Dean makes a comment about dancers being toe shoes full of crazy. And I'm just going to leave that here until season 15. Again, are we alluding to the mysterious potential dancing episode I may have been told about that may or may not exist? Maybe they square dance. And even if they do, the fact that it would happen in the final season is even more bizarre. It's either square dancing or tap dancing, whichever one is more plausible to you. Is it weird that square dancing seems more plausible in some way? No, but the cowboy connection, <laughs> I think that makes sense. Uh, I also need to say, like, this is one of those things I weirdly have, like, some knowledge on, and it is ballet shoes, and, like, the level of intensity that goes along with dancers and their shoes and where they get them from and how they, like, break them in, that someone in the position of this character who is our cold open death who is clearly like so above everybody else buying secondhand shoes is like really odd. Like secondhand ballet shoes is like your last resort. Like you wouldn't buy secondhand ballet shoes if you were even like semi-professional because you would never be able to dance them properly because they would not be as stiff as they need to be. So it's very interesting that you would go out of way to get these. Like, I saw a quick, I think, it, I can't remember if it was a TikTok or an Instagram live or something where Missy Copeland was talking about her ballet shoes and how she uses one pair per day whenever she she practices or dances. And she has to stain each and every one of them to match her uh, her skin tone. But it also feels like the kind of thing that a bunch of men in a writing room wouldn't have thought about. <laughs> That's what I wanted to get to more. This is purely for narrative purposes, right? We find out that the Leviathan are everywhere and that one thing that they want to do is cure cancer. I have a theory as to why this is. The initial shock to me as like a viewer of this episode with no knowledge of this, it, it did its job. It had me very like slack jaw, like, wait, what? I'm using a bit of like just like detective work here and I'm saying the combination of trying to make people calm and easily susceptible to their wants and needs through the burgers and now curing cancer, are they trying to turn humans into basically cattle? Like just, they don't die, they don't get sick, they're always healthy, they live forever until they are consumed. I suppose we'll see. We hear Bad Moon Rising at the end, and while this is our first time hearing this song on the show, uh, and same thing for anybody who's been listening like to the streaming versions of Supernatural. In the original run and in the DVDs, Bad Moon Rising also plays at the very end of season one, just before Sam, Dean, and John get hit by the truck in the season finale. I knew when I heard it, I was like, no, no, this has been used already. Because we've discussed this during a voicemail about the music in the series. 
oh, that's interesting to use that song again now. Ooh. Yeah, just before the truck hits them. Frank is presumably dead at this point. Another loss for the Winchesters. I said it during the recap. I'll say it again now. Nobody, I don't believe it. Nobody, no crime. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody, no crime. They couldn't convict. Genuinely, the fact they don't find a body, there is a lot of blood. There's clearly been a, a, a fight. It wasn't like he was just abducted. He was literally beaten to within an inch of his life, clearly. Um, he's been kidnapped. He's been taken. Obviously, if, just to continue the trends we've been talking about, like, this again does feel like another, like, hey, we're just taking things away from the two of them. So I won't be surprised if he winds up dead, but I believe he's still alive. I want to believe. You want to believe. That's great. That's great, Drew. (laughs) For transparency, I've been watching The X-Files, and I was watching it very, very, like, you know, one episode here, one episode there, you know, like the first season. What season are you on? I'm not saying. But, like, (laughs) I was watching it, like, so slowly. Like, I, I don't think I've ever watched a series, like, that slowly if it wasn't, like, on on air (laughs) it got really good and i just couldn't i can't stop i can't stop this week our theme is creeping and when i picked this out i was thinking pretty specifically about the meaning of like sneaking up like because this episode like you said they do a a switcheroo there's like something creeping up on you and and so i thought about that So creeping actually has a Germanic root that literally means to move the body near or along the ground as a reptile or insect does. And this has also evolved to mean like to move secretly or to evade detection. For example, in the X-Files, there is a conspiracy creeping up on the human race. Well done, well done. You can also use it in reference to disease, like as in slowly spreading. And I just, I don't know. I really love the image of like moving close to the ground because that's how you evade detection, right? Like, so let's see what things are creeping up on us or creeping out uh, the brothers this week. Dean, I feel, gets very little development this week versus how much screen time he has. Other than interactions with Frank and exposition, we don't really get much. However, what we do get from him is aptly described as creeping. Like, he's aware and alert of his surroundings and winds up being correct when it comes to Joyce and her, like, realtor gig thing. He doesn't just go blasting down doors. Rather, he approaches cautiously and with purpose, leading him to, with Frank's aid, learning this is all part of the Dickspiracy, patent pending. The Dickspiracy, oh my god. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Oh, no. (laughs) So this is what we're going to be referring to. You started this. I did, but I was making dick jokes. This isn't a dick joke. This is like a dick portmanteau word. (laughs) Oh, dick manteaus are happening. (laughs) Dick First off, like, I agree. I fully agree. Like, I also think that there's like a really important moment that speaks to like what you're saying when he tells Scott that like, 
feeling guilty isn't going to bring his mother back and that the best thing that he can do is to live his life the way he thinks would make her proud. And like, oh my God, wow. That's why when you say you're like, he doesn't get much development. I'm like, I I disagree. I disagree (laughs) because he does. He really does. Like, because this, he spent like most of the season feeling so incredibly low. Like hope is actually starting to creep, creep back up for Dean. Like he's giving advice to Scott, but like at the end of the day, really like, I think it shows where he's at in his own grief and his own emotions. I think you're right. I think this is one of those moments where like, I kind of like, again, writing my notes was very like, yeah, Dean is really present in this episode. And then proceeded to write a lot about Dean and be like, oh yeah, Dean does stuff. So yeah, I think you're right. I think I, I, I'm agreeing with you. Past me was wrong. <laughs> that happens sometimes. <laughs> yeah. That happens a lot with me. <laughs> with me too. Like, Dean, I feel, has never really been one for subtlety. Like, yes, he can sneak in the moment, like, catching a monster off guard or setting a trap. But, like, he's also more likely to be the one to, like, kick down a door or tackle a mystery literally head on. See, time after time. It's interesting to see this level of development in him that, like, almost snuck up on me, it seems. Yeah, seriously. I see you. There you go. Damn it. The theme's escaping the show. (laughs) The theme's in the house with me right now. I want to believe, Drew. <laughs> there is one thing that kind of creeps up on Dean, uh, or, or maybe out of Dean this week, and that's like his feelings about ballet. So bear with me here, because the point shoes at the very beginning of the episode like seem to be like appealing only to people who already love ballet, like the first victim and Tracy. And Tracy's dad isn't like affected by them, Uh, The janitor who finds the first victim isn't affected by them either. Everyone who processes the scene isn't affected by them, but Tracy is, and her dad says she loves ballet. So we know from the beginning of the episode that Dean has seen Black Swan twice. And he says it's because of, like, the tutu on tutu action, quote right? Quoting him. Um, But we also know that Dean tends to hide his true feelings behind a mask of like hegemonic masculinity. Sam mentions that the shoes appear to be Dean's size. And then Dean says that he feels the urge to Prince Siegfried himself into oblivion, which is a Swan Lake reference, by the way. And that means that the point shoes are affecting him, but not Sam. So I think that Dean actually secretly loves ballet and these cursed point shoes are making his love for it creep outside of his mask of toxic masculinity. Again, it's that very good level of like surface level humor of like, oh, let's make the manly character have an unmanly trait, like potentially dancing ballet or being into ballet. We can laugh about it. But the reality is, I feel like so many people did this, watched Swan Lake, and then realized this is a damn good movie and ballet is interesting and there's more to it than just two female characters who happen to have a slightly sexual relationship. For someone who we know readily has access to porn if he really wants to, he watched it again. And I'm guessing it wasn't for the 2 2 2 action the second time. No, I don't think it was. I do kind of love this realization that, like, I think he realizes it too. Like, it creeps up on him even that he's like, oh, the shoes are after me for something. Like, shit, did I like that movie for more reasons than I think I did? There you go. And then Sam, like, pokes fun at him a little bit, but doesn't, like, judge him or, like, treat him like it's wrong of him to have those emotions and feelings. 
But Sam never does that, actually. Sam is generally really good at that in the long run. It's just nice to see that there's such an easy, like, here's the shot to take, and he doesn't take it because he respects him. I also feel like we need to look at the ending of this episode, The Disappearance of Frank Through Dean's Eyes, because Dean might have been creeping under the radar this week, and for the most part, since his deeper dive into all things Dick, but he was nothing compared to Frank, and seeing that Frank appears to have met a terrible fate, suddenly Dean isn't sure how like safe and how really he was unnoticed this entire time. Like, because if they can get to Frank, then they can definitely get to us kind of thing, you know? Like... Plus the fact that they also dove in headfirst into a case like in a town full of leviathans and they had no idea. Like they literally jumped into a trap or they could have jumped into a trap, you know, like if if the, if it, that had been the intent. Yeah, super scary. Yeah, I very much get the vibe of the like when you think you're being super sly and super cool and then someone like mentions something and you're like, wait, you only know that if you knew everything, shit. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Like almost the reverse of Cass with the the Superman comment or when he, he makes the, yeah, the nerdy yeah, reference. What about Sam? Sam, on the other hand, is creeping closer to a confrontation with Lucifer in his head. And while he's been doing his best to avoid it, we clearly see it in his actions this week from his inability to pay attention to his falling asleep at the wheel. He's really fighting a losing battle. Like while it's a, it's a war of attrition, it's literally just a who can outlast the other one. And the one who doesn't need sleep, food, or anything, and is, as far as we know, purely imaginary, kind of has the upper hand when it comes to the creeping closer to victory. At this point, like, I think that we're truly seeing, like, the writing on the wall, so to speak, of, like, what might be happening in upcoming episodes. We got a first taste of it last episode with Repo Man, and now we're seeing, like really the damage that Lucifer is actually causing Sam. And it's only ramping up at this point. Like Sam says at one point in the episode that Lucifer's been singing Stairway to Heaven 50 times. And like, if we even just dig into that a little bit, like it's a way to taunt Sam, not only through the torture of repetition, but also through like the threat of death. The same way Sam is creeping closer to defeat, Lucifer's creeping closer to victory, but he's also getting closer to breaking Sam because yes, a song stuck in your head is kind of torturous. I'm willing to bet Lucifer does not have the greatest of singing voices. And even if he does, he ain't allowing himself to do it. So we have both Sam creeping along, trying to live now that Lucifer seems to be more prevalent and Lucifer creeping closer and closer to the surface and like breaking through and having effects on Sam that he can no longer control as per the sleeping. And I can't really say much about that just because like, I know what's coming in the season and I'm like, I can't like, I (laughs) I have thoughts, but. So I'm going to kind of leave it at that, but you're absolutely right. Like this is, we are reaching a breaking point for Sam. I'd also like to take note that Sam's war of attrition with Lucifer is not just leaving him tired and a bit loopy, but he says something when recovering the gramophone. Uh, he, he shouts at the kid, kid, this would be a really good time for a lesson in gratitude. Lucky for you, I'm too tired. Sam's getting snippy with an innocent child who was just nearly forced to kill his own mother because of a cursed music device. You know, even taking into account the rush they seem to be in with all these cursed objects to collect, this is really out of character for Sam and does a great job of letting us as an audience know that he's really not holding up well. Like he's really reaching a breaking point. You know, I never thought about that before, to be entirely honest with you. Yeah, I see, I see what you're saying. 
but I sort of want to get back to this, the term that you used, because you've used it twice already, like the term war of attrition. And it's like the second military reference that you make, like specifically with regards to Sam's mental health. And I think like you talked about him fighting a losing battle also earlier. I don't usually use or like to use military metaphors to talk about mental health, like, or even health in general. There's a lot of literature out there that describes that it can be pretty unhelpful and even sometimes like demoralizing and kind of dehumanizing as well. But in this case, uh, with Sam and his struggle with Lucifer, I'm really willing to entertain it because it's Lucifer that he's fighting, quote unquote, against. Like it's not any, again, quote unquote, regular mental health or mental illness that's described in the DSM, you know? And so I have a lot of feelings about all of that. Uh, and I promise that we're going to talk about it more before the season is over, because that's also going to come to a head. May I just say thank you. That's a really interesting, eye-opening um, view on this I have never really considered. You're right. I have used a lot of military terminology in this kind of battle with Lucifer in his head. I'm now like doing that self-check of like, have I used these terms before outside of this scenario? And I'm like, I'm hoping I haven't, but I'm now going to be more cautious of it. I also like that you agree that like, yes, this is kind of a weird circumstance that kind of doesn't really meet the DSM's criteria for most mental health issues. And this is super prevalent. We do it all the time. Everybody does it like, oh, we fight. You, you're going to fight it. You're going to win, like blah, blah, blah. But the thing, anyway, <laughs> sorry, it's because I helped my, my, my supervisor put together a paper specifically about that. And I, so I ended up reading a lot of it about it. And it's like, at the end of the day, like you're not really fighting illness. Like you're, you're, you can be strategizing, but like at the end of the day, like you're taking a chance that this treatment is going to work versus this other one, right? We can talk about that at length if you'd like at some point. I'd love to. Today we'll be looking at an affordable bungalow here just outside of town. Though it's a bit far from the city center, it's a short and might I add beautiful drive through the woods to your nearest grocery store and pharmacy. With plenty of land for raising animals or farming, you won't need to worry about noisy neighbors at all. The house was originally built in the late 70s, but has had many modern accommodations added by previous tenants. Like this kitchen, just look at all the modern equipment all included free of charge. Those are some top quality meat processing tools here. Maybe the past owner worked in the beef and pork industry. The home includes two full bathrooms, two bedrooms, and even has a wine cellar accessible from the rear of the home. The cellar is original and remains as it was from its first construction, using natural stone to properly control the temperature of the wine cellar's contents ensuring everything stays fresh for as long as you need it stored. Asking prices well below your budget, I guess they just wanted the place to sell fast. They didn't leave behind any note or instructions, so if you like it, we can go back to my office and sign some paperwork. Oh, the previous tenants? Actually, I don't know. Weirdly, they just contacted us by phone and mailed us the keys. I've never met them or know why they're leaving this beautiful place. Now, if everything's looking good, we can get you and your delicious little family all settled into place. What? No, no, no. I said adorable. Adorable little family.
So earlier this season, I promised that we would talk a little bit more about camp. And at the time, we defined camp as like an aesthetic style and sensibility that regards something as appealing because of its bad taste and ironic value. And we talked about its association with queerness and queer culture, particularly with drag. Uh, but camp is also found in other media references and other like time references. And this episode hits like so many of them. Like, first off, there's campy horror, which, like, I think that Supernatural just kind of embodies that in so many ways. Like, think, like, Scream, Texas Chainsaw, Jennifer's Body, like, those are all considered to be camp. There's also elements of, like, the 1920s aesthetics, which, when they're portrayed today, tend to be portrayed as campy. So, like, think back to the gramophone and like when it was playing that song in the episode like that could be considered to be quite campy there's also visual elements from the 80s and the 90s that are considered to be pretty campy today like for example think big hair think dolly right dolly parton and i'm i'm kind of thinking about like joyce's look Right. And that to me, I think, is inspired from that with her hair and her perfectly manicured everything and like the little red blazer. Like it's just it's kind of perfect. And here's a really cool little nugget for everybody. So in her essay Notes on Camp, Susan Sontag quotes a passage from Christopher Isherwood's 1954 novel, The World in the Evening, and it goes, High camp is the whole emotional basis for ballet, for example, and of course for Baroque art. High camp always has an underlying seriousness. You can't camp about something you don't take seriously. You're not making fun of it, you're making fun out of it. You're expressing what's basically serious to you in terms of fun and artifice and elegance. Baroque art is basically camp about religion, and the ballet is camp about love. Now, friends, we've just talked about this. We know that the elements of camp in season seven are there like very intentionally. We also know that like not only the ballet slippers in the, this episode are calling Dean, but that Dean secretly might love ballet. So what does that tell us about Dean's relationship and attitude towards love? What, like, what a beautiful, like, culmination of, like, information and knowledge. I am so grateful for this. Thank you. You're so welcome. This week, we have a message from Ether. Before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. To respond to anything we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Drew and I are going to be answering the question, what notable antique or secondhand item do you own for our Roadhouse supporters on our Impala Talk? Stay to the very end of the episode to hear a short clip. Ether writes, Hey guys, a few weeks ago a video popped up on my For You page and I just had to share it with you. The video is a collection of several times in the show where Sam and Dean are shown sharing clothing. And boy do I have thoughts. Do they have one set of clothes they both use, like a suitcase of various articles of clothing that they pick from, save for certain items that belong exclusively to one person, such as Dean's leather jacket? Has Dean always given Sam his clothes since they were kids? Does Dean just occasionally steal Sam's clothes, or the other way around, maybe? Most of the stuff they share is big on Dean. This could be because it's not his size in the first place, or because it's been stretched out by a certain moose. 
Anyways, I couldn't get it out of my head, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic. Also, I'd like to know that the video contains no spoilers for the show, so you can watch it. Either. Either, thank you so much for this for, for this message. First off, like unfortunately, when we tried to click the TikTok, we just couldn't see it. I think it's either been deleted or maybe the account is gone. I'm so sorry, but we weren't able to watch it. However, I do have thoughts about this because... <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because this is a conversation that I've had on Twitter before where I'm like, how do they manage their clothing? Because like, think about it, especially in the first seasons where they don't really have like um, a home base, right? You see them sometimes they have a bag, they have a backpack or like a duffel bag or something. So clearly they seem to have some sort of like personal items that they carry around with them. And we also have to keep in mind that they live out, out of their car. And so they don't probably don't have all that many items that they do carry around because the Impala always looks pristine. Then again, you know, this is this could be like kind of like the Mary Poppins bag where like things just pop up because this is the magic of like the, the supernatural universe. I'm also thinking that maybe they have like a storage uh, unit somewhere. However, however, I will say that they probably their clothes probably get really, really dirty with blood very often. And so they probably have to get rid of their clothes often, which means that I think that they thrift a lot of their stuff. And so I think that like they they go places, they pick out some clothes that they wear until like the clothes just can't be worn anymore or like the, the stains can't come out. Then they get rid of those and then they go and thrift more clothes. That's how I think that they are realistically managing their wardrobe. And I think that some items do come back and stay with them, like the leather jacket, like this, like that. Like there's a couple of shirts also that we see kind of like through uh, a few seasons. Thank you for this message, Ether. I never really thought about it. Like, it's one of those things where it's like, I think it's up there with the, like, you never really think about, like, when characters go to the bathroom during an action movie. Like, you know, like, we've never really left Tony Stark's side. When is he using the washroom? I don't want to think about it, but, like, it's out there. But, like, it, it's true. Like, you never really think about it. Like, yes, they have the occasional bag with them, which we usually see full of weapons and stuff. So, like, they're probably not carrying around a lot of clothing. Which I think then lends to the point you brought up in your message of like, when they share clothes, I don't think it's a like necessity. It's a necessity. It's not a matter of like, oops, I'm borrowing one of your shirts because it's a no, it's like, we're out of clothing. We'll have to go. You say thrift. I am assuming they're just robbing stores or stealing like the cheap shit from gas stations or something like. Sure. But like, ultimately, like I could see the like reality of like getting back from a hunt and realizing they have to go to the next place and they don't have time to stop somewhere. And Dean's like, oh, I have to wear one of Sam's like 7XL moose shirts. Like, great, I'm going to be swimming in this thing. And just like, it happens from time to time. But then another point you brought up is like, yeah, I'm betting when they were younger, at least, a lot of Sam's clothes were hand-me-downs from Dean because, I mean... Look at their childhood. Are you surprised by this fact? And then I guess like when Sam eventually got bigger than Dean, it probably went the other way. Again, keep in mind that in order to have hand-me-downs, you have to have like shirts that, or you have to be able to have like storage capacity for this stuff because they're four years apart. And granted, Sam is like seven feet tall, but like he wasn't when he was little. And so that's why I'm like, I don't know if it's all hand-me-downs. I think it might 
be at a certain point, especially when in their teenage years and like when when Sam starts to get tall. But like when they're kids, I don't think so, because that would mean that John would have to be keeping Dean's clothes somehow in the Impala to be able to hand it down to Sam like a year or two later. And that just doesn't seem like anything that John would do. Yeah, I guess it kind of goes two ways. It's either the like John only bought them new clothes when the old clothes were so destroyed they couldn't be like worn anymore, or he realized like Sam needed a new shirt, so he just bought one for Dean and gave Dean's to Sam, or just like when Dean got something new, they would just give it to Sam because Dean was probably out like you know I want a nicer shirt and would acquire it through his own means, and then suddenly Sam had a shirt. Again, think about the size difference of a, a child that's four years old and a child that's eight years old. A child that's eight years old and 12 years old. Like, they are, the, it doesn't make sense that it would go directly to another. Like, and I'm speaking about this as a mom. Like, <laughs> like when I hand down clothes to, like, my friends who have kids, it has to be like the perfect age, right? Otherwise, like they have to keep the clothes for a while or I have to keep the clothes for a while. That's why I'm not sure about the hand-me-down stuff. But I do think though, that a, a little bit later, once Sam starts growing a lot, they do probably have that thing. Yeah, where, I can like, see that. It makes more sense. Yes, yeah. for sure. Because I'm even thinking like myself with two younger brothers, three years apart each, there was a lot of handing stuff down, but it was very likely stuff that like got kept and put aside and held on to until they were the right size. Ask your mom about it. She'll <laughs> tell you all about it. <laughs> Do you have any reflection and call to action this week? Accepting help can be tough. And I know there are times it's offered and I think I know better. I feel I've been better in recent years of not just asking for help, but also accepting it when it's offered. But it's always good to remind myself that there are people around me that have my best interests at heart and care about me and will offer help even if I'm not asking for it. And I need to be less dense and realize that. It's also realizing I wrote this well before some recent events in my life. And I'm now even more thankful I wrote this down because it's a nice little reminder to myself. Thank you, past me, for writing these notes that are incredibly relevant today. See, past you doesn't always screw up. <laughs> He's pretty awesome. Sometimes past me will buy the right flower. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and Mary, do you have any calls to action or reflections this week? I personally feel really moved by Dean secretly loving ballet and just never really telling anybody about it. Um, and never getting to really enjoy it out in the open, like whether by watching it or by trying it out. And it's making me feel called to like not be afraid to try things regardless of how that might look to other people. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano. Hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. Thank you to everyone supporting us on Coffee or Patreon. And an extra thank you to our Bunker supporters, Elle, Jeremiah, Thomas, and Simone. This week, we'd like to thank Ether for the message. You can go to carryingwayward.com for the links to our merch store and all of our socials. And if you'd like to support us, you can become a patron or a coffee subscriber. You can also leave us a rating on Spotify and a review on Apple Podcasts. Carry on our wayward friends.
as a family, we keep a lot of heirlooms, but like we all sort of keep them. And like looking around my office at like so many cool like knickknacks and things, like nothing really jumps out. And then I realize I have it. And I'm having a moment now of like, I think I know where it is, but it's not in my office. I have a very small, like that big, like not even an inch, like Kinder Surprise toy size, wind up a uh, toy dog that my father gave to my mother on their first date. 